You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. 2018 was a year of good news and bad news in cybersecurity. The year passed without a major international incident. Certainly nothing on the scale of the WannaCry ransomware attack in 2017. And yet, every few weeks brought news of another big data breach at another big company. So where do we stand going into 2019? Are we winning in any sense? When and where will the next so-called Tier 1 attack occur? And importantly, what is the role of government in helping to ensure national cyber security? To find out more, I sat down in London with David Chin, a McKinsey partner who works with private and public sector organisations on these issues, and also with Robert Hannigan, who's former head of GCHQ, the UK government's electronic surveillance agency. Robert led the creation of the UK National Cyber Security Centre, or NCSC. Today, he's a McKinsey senior advisor. So, Robert and David, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Simon. Looking glad to be here. Thanks. I think for a layperson, the general question around cybersecurity is probably just, are we winning? No, I I think we are making progress, but I think it would be very uh, rash to say we're winning. If you look at the two big trends, the rise in volume of attacks and the rise in sophistication, they are both alarming. On volume, particularly of crime, there was something like 317 million new pieces of malicious code or malware in, in a single year last year. That's nearly a million a day. So that, that's pretty alarming. On the sophistication, we've seen particularly with states behaving in an aggressive way and using very sophisticated uh, state capabilities uh, and that bleeding into sophisticated criminal groups. They rise in the sheer um, tradecraft of attacks. So no, I don't think we're winning, but I think we're doing the right things to win in the future. I would agree with, with Robert. I mean, we may not have seen a single attack that brought down multiple institutions in the same way that WannaCry did. But look at the list of institutions reporting very sizable breaches and of you know, increasingly sensitive data. Now that we've got some more regulation forcing people to be more transparent about the breaches, the length of time that attackers were inside their networks before they discovered, and it's not always clear to those attacked what they've lost. So I, I think um, I'm actually broadly pessimistic. So when you think about like where the next tier one attack might come, what are some of the sort of vulnerabilities that in business and government, you know, people are thinking about, talking about? I think most of the focus now is on supply chain and upstream risk, because even the best defended companies now realize that their vulnerability is either those who are connected to so their vendors, their suppliers, even their customers. Uh, and increasingly, government is worrying about the IT infrastructure, so the global supply chain, both hardware and software, and its integrity. And some of the state attacks we've seen in the last couple of years have been against the backbone of the internet, if you like, so routers, switches, places that give you massive options to to do different things with internet traffic. And so uh, it's going deeper uh, and more sophisticated. I think there's different versions of what tier one might feel like. I 
think that the increasing ability uh, of both criminals and, and states, obviously, to attack critical infrastructure, you know, taking out power to a you know city might have relatively limited impact in terms of the you know the what the, the actual damage done, but could have a huge impact on the way people feel. There is a difference between a genuinely catastrophic damaging attack and a politically sensitive attack that spreads fear and terror, a lack of trust in data. Uh, And I think it's fairly easy to imagine things that will lead to uh, public panic. You've seen big public controversies over airlines and banks being unable to function often through non not through cyber attacks but if you if you were to multiply that and see it as a malicious attack you could see genuine public disquiet and a lot of political pressure to do something about it yes it's it's interesting because when you talk about critical infrastructure of the modern economy you often think about things like as you say it's the internet backbone it's those kind of things or maybe financial services the financial system But just talk a little bit more about the supply chain, for example. That's one that I think in the sort of broad uh, conversation about this and the sort of broad business public is is less discussed. I mean, if you think about, you know, how at the simplest level, a pint of milk gets into onto the supermarket shelf. There are many stages in that from, you know, the farm, by the way, the cows are milked by a machine, which is probably connected to a network through to the transport network, the cold chain, the monitoring of the cold chain, don't actually need to disrupt anything except the record that says the milk was kept cold for it no longer to be a product that can be given to the public. The integrity of that data is the essential glue that sticks it all together. Yeah, and if you think of the big ransomware attacks of WannaCry and NotPetya a couple of years ago, one of the lessons from that is that although they, they almost certainly weren't targeting big manufacturing enterprises in Europe, they effectively disabled quite a lot of household name companies and they simply couldn't do business, couldn't manufacture for, uh, in one case, several weeks. So I think it was a wake-up call to sectors of the economy who thought they weren't uh, a target for cyber attacks because they didn't have great IP or data that was worth uh, stealing necessarily. So the Internet of Things is simply uh, connecting more processes and more devices to the Internet. And it is quite striking that the, the level of security built into those is usually very low because they're they're designed and built and procured on cost. And there will probably be a role for regulation to improve the standards there. But it does mean companies are, both through digitization and through the Internet of Things, increasing their attack surface and making it harder for them to understand the perimeters of their own networks, harder to see where their vulnerabilities are. Uh, and that is a, a real problem for the next five, ten years. And is this one of the reasons that people are very interested, for example, in blockchain, the application of blockchain in the supply chain, for example? Yes, I think blockchain holds up massive potential because of the holy grail, really, of having a, a ledger that is distributed and really unchangeable and visible to everybody. Uh, that uh, has great benefits in cybersecurity. It's got a bad name because it's used for Bitcoin, and Bitcoin has a bad name. But I think blockchain technology is is fantastic. Uh, um, it's not straightforward to apply, and I think there's a lot of talk about it. The application in particular uh, sectors for particular uses is still to be developed, to be honest. But it, it certainly ought to be a net gain for security, uh, and particularly for data integrity, because one of the big future worries is it's one thing to destroy data or steal it or ransom it, to change it and undermine trust in data, particularly in financial services, could be catastrophic. 
or indeed milk, which is what, what gave me the thought. It's a very, very simple example, but it undermines how much the economy runs on trust and that, that sort of data. Yeah. I think we're just seeing criminals moving in this direction and looking at ways of using the corruption of data to, for example, affect stock prices. Uh, that's, there's a huge uh, potential there to, to use the changes you can affect to data or to put out false data uh, to affect um, the value of a company. Fake news is a great example. It's not, um, you know, they, they haven't affected the integrity of the core data. They're just simply putting out noise. Uh, and we've also, you know, in the reports on the attacks of the integrity of the electoral system in the United States, in a system which is highly distributed, where different standards and technologies are used uh, across the United States, there were clear evidence of attempts to penetrate electoral registers. Imagine you know, changing the electoral register so that people of a certain party simply didn't appear and in the hustle and bustle of election day probably wouldn't get to place their votes, could uh, you know, dramatically undermine trust in democracy. So, uh, Robert, we're lucky to have you on the podcast today. Why don't you just talk a little bit about what is the role of government in all of this? Well, I think it's a challenge that every government is, is grappling with in, in different ways and has been over the last 10 years. And there are a couple of things that make cyber particularly difficult. One is cyber defense undercuts the assumption that government can do defense for everybody. So David spent a lot of his time uh, dealing with government defense in a traditional sense. And you as a citizen expect government to defend you using the armed forces. It's, it's unrealistic to expect government to do cyber defense in the same way for the whole economy because of the scale of it. And because most of what you're dealing with is outside government. Uh, quite apart from the fact that the skills and resources just aren't there in government to to do it on that scale. So that's one problem. The other problem is that cyber is cross-cutting in every sense. It is in a new domain, so it's a bit like discovering water or air. Uh, and every department, every part of the economy is uh, dependent on this increasingly, and as, as we digitize more, become more dependent. And so you can't really point to a single bit of government and say you're responsible for cyber. That was the tendency uh, in the early days. I think the answer has to be to find a way of organising government uh, that gives sufficient speed and command and control to deal with the pace at which digital uh, networks work and cyber attacks work, uh, but that actually drags up the whole of government to be good at cyber security, because if any one bit is bad at it, uh, the whole system suffers. Robert, it's interesting... What you say, because in a sense, government has three challenges. One, it is an actor in cyberspace, in service of national interest, usually in secret. Secondly, it has to protect itself from cyber attack. And thirdly, it has to create, at a minimum, an environment where, which protects the citizens and businesses of the country. You know, my observation would be that... Um, at least reportedly, the UK is very good in the first. Your old institution is a world-class actor uh, in the national interest in cyberspace. The second is quite hard, defending government, because there's so much of it. With such very, I mean, the technical skills of government, I mean, government IT is continually in the newspaper and in the Public Accounts Committee as being something that we struggle to do well Simple things like putting a working computer on everybody's desk, let alone defending those networks. 
So most governments, including the UK, have focused their attention on protecting government networks, sometimes interpreted slightly more broadly to take in some critical bits of national infrastructure that really, really matter. Um, but to encourage the rest of the economy to get better. So we spent 10, 15 years, in a sense, preaching at companies uh, to get them to raise their standards. And I think there was quite a critical shift, certainly in the UK about three or four years ago, where we decided that a, a security model that depended on everybody and every company doing the right thing all the time was almost bound to fail. The whole system was not designed with security in mind, really. So the people who invented the internet and then the web that sits on it didn't really uh, have security at the front of mind. And so we're retrofitting that and have been over the last 15 years. Things like scanning websites um, for vulnerabilities, which is again being done across government, you could do nationally and you could make that available nationally. I, and one of the problems, I think, is that because the internet wasn't designed with security in mind, Security is seen as something you need to add on rather than something that's built in. So we need to reach a point where security is designed in and is by, there by default, particularly with the Internet of Things. Uh, and that may require some regulation and certainly will require bits of the economy, including insurance, to start to drag up standards. Do you think government's been remiss on regulation? My, my observation would be that GDPR, which is not a cyber regulation, but that puts significant penalties on institutions for allowing private information to be misused, which includes being stolen, is having quite a big impact already in terms of reporting and transparency, which is then going to inevitably lead to more investment and more focus by organisations on protecting that data. Do you think government missed the boat a little bit on regulation? I think government certainly in this country has been reluctant to regulate for all sorts of reasons. Um, in cyber, there's a particular reason why regulation can be difficult because it can be end up being very prescriptive and very tick box and actually doesn't take account of the speed at which technology is changing and the particular networks that a company may have. So we preferred a, 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 um, an advisory, um, you know, here are here are objectives you should meet a risk based approach I suppose um, best practices yeah, and these exactly. kind of things and yeah. Uh, yeah there is a good good case for saying we need a tougher approach on regulation I think the EU is moving in that direction I think GDPR on the whole has been a, a net benefit because essentially there are two sides to most cyber attacks there's you know did you do the right things to prevent it and then how did you handle it afterwards so GDPR has been particularly strong on the second bit. First of all, it's removed the debate in companies about whether they reveal the attack and how long, because they have to. Uh, that's good. Um, it's raised awareness in boardrooms and to some degree panic in boardrooms. But I think the best regulation probably is in the States. And it's interesting to see that California is introducing some hardware um, IT supply chain regulation, which will have a big impact, I think, given that so much of it is designed there, even if it's mostly made in China. So I think there is a place for regulation. You know, we probably should have uh, done more of it. The difficulty is lack of skills again. I think you know most governments don't have sufficient skills. To ah, well, that was going to be my next question. Yes, I mean, if you, uh, to your point, David, I mean, government IT doesn't have a uh, sort of massively positive reputation in the world at large, sometimes unfairly. Um, but yes, do, do governments actually have the technical skills in cyber to protect their own networks? The interesting thing about cyber is that actually the source of innovation in attacks 
is mostly coming from inside governments. Yes, so clearly some governments have very highly skilled... Many governments have very highly (laughs) skilled people who, when they, you know, when their knowledge leaks into the public domain, um, gets adopted quickly by criminals. We have, you know, the equivalent of government weapons proliferation into cyberspace. And, you know, if you follow uh, the cyber industry, where there's a huge number of startups... Effectively, you know, each year's retiring crop of government hackers is bringing new innovation from inside the, the secret domains of government in, you know, in an appropriately, hopefully appropriately modified way to the benefit of those who are under attack often from other governments. So, it, you know, one can't say that there are no skills in government. The best skills are probably in government. I think, I think that's true, but I wouldn't underestimate the, the creativity and innovation of criminal groups. I mean, they are genuinely creative. They are talking to each other about, you know, how could we do this in a better way? How could we defraud this particular bank? And what, what technique is going to work best? What's the best way of delivering it? So they are doing what so many traditional companies are trying to do, which is pull in skills from you know, around, the, around the internet, um, not necessarily co-located. They've clocked something about how to harness young, innovative skills and do creative things. Um, so we've quite a bit to learn from them, I think. Uh, so I, I agree that governments uh, have been, have been uh, very good in a, quite a, a small and narrow way, but uh, the criminal world is also pretty innovative. But, but I think this, you know, this is similar to the, you know, certainly in the UK, the crisis in STEM education. You know, if people don't study STEM subjects, we're just not going to have... The, the inflow into the uh, into the economy, whether it be for government or or private industry, and, and I, I've been particularly impressed by the way that Israel has taken cyber, you know, effectively said that this is a national industrial. I mean, first of all, it's a national defensive capability issue, but it's actually a national industrial growth issue. You know, the country decided they wanted to have one of the world's leading cyber industry platforms. And that in order to do that, they had to make a massive investment in skills. And, you know, they started with after school activities in the most deprived areas because they recognized that if you start young enough uh, in a country where almost every home has a computer, even those with, you know, with very, very low means to think that having a computer is important, that you can build those skills in a sense, in parallel to formal education, and that many people who are extremely talented in the cyber domain actually don't do particularly well at school. Uh, it's a, an outlet for those people, and they, I think it's been very, very successful. It's created a, a great pipeline of talent into government and private industry. I think another really interesting question for government is how you manage this tension between the need for transparency and actually sort of bringing the whole economy with you. And yet at the same time, there is an element of, of secrecy act, acting in the national interest and, and so on. How do you manage that tension in practice? I think the key insight of the last sort of 10 years has been that you, you can't do cybersecurity in secret. So you can't do it behind a wall in the, the intelligence agencies for the obvious reason that the attacks are out there in open source, in the economy, on the internet. It's all visible. Uh, well, most of it is visible. Um, and it, it makes no sense to try to do it in the way that you tackle traditional security threats, which may be very, very secret and coming from a, 
you know, very sophisticated governments. There is a side of that that is true for cyber, but most of it is not. So most of what people experience in cyber, whether companies or individuals, is crime. Uh, some of it state back crime, but still crime. And it, it, it simply doesn't work to be referring constantly to a, a, a secret world that can't really communicate. So the obvious uh, development here has been to create a national cybersecurity center that was outside the secret world, but under the uh, aegis and actually under the control of uh, GCHQ, which is where the skill sat, uh, and to have a blend of both. So in the headquarters, you've got the access to secret systems for some people, but the key point is that you have uh, openness to industry and you have industry people sitting alongside government experts. Because I think it goes back to our discussion of regulation. What you need in cyber, you can't simply have cyber regulators who do it for everybody because so much is domain specific. You need to understand the energy sector in order to regulate or advise on how to do cybersecurity for energy or for any other sector. It's different. And therefore, the, the idea is to have experts from those particular sectors sitting literally alongside uh, deep cyber experts. And to your point, David, it sounds like a lot of companies are struggling with this same sort of cultural pull between, you know, the secrecy, but the need to share information really to be effective, uh, or to be more effective, to actually collaborate with your peers and share information. Yes, and I think, you know, we'll see the Information Commissioner shaping the environment around transparency quite actively in the you know very near future. This is your uh, point around regulation. Yes, and uh, and I think that will really change people's understanding of you know how much they can keep they can legitimately keep secret. Can we just internationalize the conversation a, a, a little bit? If you if you look across the international context, what what are other governments who are doing this well and innovatively and who we can all learn from? I would say uh, Singapore and Israel are doing it very well. Slightly different models. Australia has chosen a model that's pretty similar to the UK model, um, having it all in one place, effectively, certainly the operational side of cyber. Most governments are, are organizing at the moment and constantly tweaking the system. There are very different models. And in Europe, France and Germany especially, the cyber agencies are purely civilian. And then there is a secret world element of cyber. And I think they're also looking at how to how to bring those two together uh, in a way that works for them, given a different constitutional setup. The military in many countries has uh, a primacy in cyber, and uh, certainly in Germany, they've been given a strong lead in cyber defense. Uh, that brings both both opportunities, because the military wars have a lot of resources, and they're very good at organizing stuff, um, but also challenges, because they're not used to dealing with defending banks and the economy and it's it's a, a culture shock for them and they don't necessarily feel that's part of their remit so there are difficulties in the military the u.s everybody looks to but i think um it's so large in its um a multiplicity of agencies that it it's struggling it has fantastic capabilities obviously um the private sector is probably better organized particularly in financial services than any, anywhere in the world but you often get the criticism or complaint from uh the private sector that the links to government are not quite right yet. And that, I think, reflects partly the fact it's still evolving Department of Homeland Security that was given this leadership uh, under the Bush administration is still developing. Um, and it's not straightforward, particularly on that scale. I don't think anybody has a perfect answer. I think, actually, the military is a very interesting subset of government, because I don't think there's even one model 
in the military. Some countries are creating cyber commands, others are building cyber in all of their commands, others are concentrating in their intelligence services, and then combining those in different ways. And that's also changing over time. So we're, it sounds like we're, we're in an era of institutional innovation in many ways, uh, and to some degree institutional improvisation to try and figure out what models work in what contexts. Yeah, absolutely. I think the military is a very good example where particularly uh, outside the US, I mean, the US are ahead of anybody, I think, in, in developing cyber skills in the military at scale. On the broader point about civilian structures and civilian stroke military, I think the one thing that is probably key is that many of the questions are the same and starting with you know, what does government actually want to achieve and you know, not being over ambitious in what government can achieve and what's the, the appropriate role of government uh, is, is a good starting point and trying to define what the government and people expect from their government. So things like a single source of advice, incident response, protection of certain networks, I think I think that is a conversation that just about every government is having in different ways. But I think there's a paradox here, because if you were to interview the chairman or chief executive of any large corporation and ask them, you know, what's their top three risks, cyber would be on that top three for every single one, and for many of them, the number one. Yet, if we look at what governments are doing... You know, this is the one area of national security, of crime prevention and, uh, and prosecution, of critical national infrastructure that governments have, to a large extent, abdicated their responsibility. Great, some small steps. And sorry, I don't mean to be critical of what was a big small step. Uh, but exhorting the private sector to do better uh, feels like a very different role that government takes in almost every aspect of life that would feature for most people in their top three risks. So I think there's a lot more to do. Uh, but unfortunately, we may have to wait for a genuine, you know, people talk of the cyber 9-11 to create a big change in focus, understanding, spending and so on. So let me just put that back to you. What, what should be done? What would your be your list be? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think you're about it than your criticism is very fair. I mean, I think the government has moved from an absolutely sort of hands-off position to say, well, we'll look after our own networks, but you know, everybody else should get better and should slightly hectoring them when they're, they're not good enough, um, to saying, yes, there are things that we can do at national scale. The problem, I suppose, at the risk of sort of making excuses, is the nature of um, cyberspace, however defined, is makes politicians feel quite... Um, impotent because it cuts across jurisdictions. They can pass laws in their own parliament that really have zero effect. They can regulate their own companies, but not necessarily others. Uh, and that, that is a real problem. So for cybercrime, for example, most of it is based in countries which are either um, endemically corrupt or uh, unwilling to do anything about it uh, for political geopolitical reasons. What do you do about that? I mean, there's a, there is a much bigger context here of international relations and we are a million miles from getting any kind of uh, international agreements on the security and safety of, of cyberspace. So David you, you were the, the, the rousing voice of critique just now what, what should be done? I, I think first of all a sophisticated debate around the legislative and regulatory environment. Uh, the issue you know the use of product liability has been very effective in other sectors for changing the game for the manufacturers. And, and I think a robust 
thinking about product liabilities, extension to the technology arena would frankly, have quite a chastening effect on industry. In other words, uh, selling a product that has technology embedded that is deemed to be insecure could be actually breaking the law. Well, not necessarily breaking the law, but would expose you to civil action action, uh, that could have severe financial consequences. So effectively would create a market mechanism for valuing more secure products. I think, secondly, there is room for some better and some more regulation. Uh, I think, for example, if you want to sell anything to the UK government, you have to meet a minimum standard called cyber essentials. This is not the most sophisticated, but most, as we've discussed, most of the attacks are not the most sophisticated attacks. You know, and I, I think these kind of standards are very helpful because they're easily adopted by people for their own supply chains. And so I think a promulgation of standards, um, ideally with some degree of harmonisation, um, and it's very interesting, in the, in the US, the National uh, Standards Organization, NIST, have created a number of models which have got global acceptance. Because once an authority puts it out there, in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's actually a lot of demand for, for good standards. So there's a, you know, the traditional tools of government around legislation, regulation, standard setting, and so on, you know, could be used... Uh, I think quite a lot more without throttling, innova- you know, this kind of industry always says you're going to throttle innovation. I mean, actually, what they mean is it's going to cost them more. But, you know, the cost to society of insecurity is high and, and, and is going to get higher. I mean, one of my takeaways from this conversation, tell me if this is right or wrong, is that there will be one or more significant tier one, we might call them attacks, on critical national infrastructure. It doesn't matter. We're recording this in London, but it may not be a, a, you know based in the UK. But that will come. Uh, we don't know where it will come. And that will probably shift the debate into a higher gear. That probably will shift uh, the international debate about what is to be done and, and actually in some ways get this taken more seriously, perhaps at government policy and regulatory level. Is that a correct takeaway? I think for most people, most of what they will experience in most companies is still crime. So that's the, the, the volume. And, but everybody, understandably, gets excited about the catastrophic attack. Uh, and that there is a range of possibilities. For, and, and the insurance industry worries a lot about systemic failure. So systemic failure of cloud providers, for example. Uh, systemic failure of some major financial institutions, two or three of which would sort of bring down the system or could bring down the system. So those are the kind of real tier one, but there may be some political tier one problems um, and attacks that will have the kind of effect that David was talking about earlier of, of, of panic and political pressure. Trust. Yeah, either trust or um, a an attack that leads to loss of life. Um, it might not be massive loss of life, but it would put huge pressure on, uh, as terrorism does, on politicians to react. So what's that Churchill phrase? This is, this is not the uh, beginning of the end. This is the, the end of the beginning. Well, I don't think it's even really the end of the beginning. I think we're still at very early stages of this technology. It's, it's 20, and for most people, actually, it's 15, 20 years old. Um, even, even if you look back to the ARPANET, it's what, 40, 50 years old. It's not, that's not long. It's developing incredibly fast. Um, we are about to add uh, a massive amount of new processing power and therefore new data to the system, mostly through the Internet of Things. Um, we have a whole new issue, I think, uh, emerging with quantum um, computing and 
people have not quite woken up, including regulators, the fact that um, current encryption will cease to be useful once quantum arrives. So we need now to be building in quantum-safe encryption standards, which are available through NIST and through others. Um, but if we don't do that, everything, every company's records, every bit of financial data, is going, every transaction is going to be readable from the moment that quantum computing really arrives at scale. It's a wonderful innovation, but it's, it's, uh, and it has obviously lots of possibilities on the other side of the equation. Um, but it is one that actually we need to start thinking about in regulatory terms now, really. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for. So, uh, Robert and David, thank you so much. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about our research and work on cybersecurity, technology, and related issues, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.